Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Film Review. Movies, music, culture, politics, society, podcast, interviews, movie reviews, and more. Live Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on the Film Review Live channel. Subscribe. Hi, this is Bernadette Stannis, Thelma from Good Times, and you're watching the Film Review. What's going on, people? This is episode 116 of the Film Review. Movies, Music, Culture, Politics, Society podcast. We are your husband and wife team. I'm Crazy D. I'm Tracy. And we review movies, music, culture, politics, and society. And do we have a great show for you today. Let me bring this over into the center so people can see what we're talking about here. We have none other than... MC Chill, the first big MC from the CLE. We have him as our special guest today, and we're going to be running down the whole story, right? This is going to be the most extensive interview put down about MC Chill. But first, but first, but first, before we get started, we're going to let you know who MC Chill is today. You know, in his own words. So we're gonna go like this. We'll be right back. Y'all know what it's like to be MC Chill. From darkness to light, you gotta fight to be chill. When I get all hyped, they be like MC Chill. But if you write about Cleveland, it ain't right without chill. Cause if you count all them times that I spit rhymes at the mics, the stages, all the crowds that was mine, plus the 360 degree, my third eye shines. And all them girls that said I was fine, it's a lot. But not as much as how hard I grind for Cleveland. See, that's the common denominator. Some call me an innovator, but I prefer elevator because I raised y'all to be better than this, the best of me. And I've been nice on the mic from Kid Finesse to that kid Meskity. That's MC Chill. I'm both cool and the gang. I'm the man like Sam when it was snakes on the plane. And since we keeping it plain, I win well, I bend tight. I flip the script and the plane like Denzel in mid-flight. See, I ain't a rapper. I'm an MC. But if that's how you feel, though, take off the MC and the CH. I'm still ill with them skills. Yo, see, I drop heat to the best of these mixed beats. And I drop bars like I was dropping West 6th Street. Man, give me a sword, a stone, and a beat-up microphone. I'm nice from the dome like some iced-up Patron. You know who this is the first time that you hear it. I dropped that old school cool. Like I reverse engineered it. I got complex concepts, so accept the inevitable. Except I expect I to be damn near incredible. Dropping fat hits and brackets, dialogue parentheticals. Y'all better hope they keep Obamacare, cause suckers go need some medical. I got seven deadly venoms, five fingers of death. Man, y'all couldn't see MC chill if I was the last MC left. 
I used to teach on a beach that used to be Atlantis. Studied with the masters, prayed with the mantis. They can't stand this advancement, but they can take their chances. Cause I got more hustle than disco dances. So talk to me nicely, all breezy and icy. Cause if it get dicey, I flip the script like I was pissed off at Spike Lee, precisely. Somebody come mic me. Oh, we cool and all, but ain't nobody like me. Talk to me. Kevin Hurd, known to hip hop to the hip hop community as MC Chill, first burst on the scene at Kent State University as a member of the Bomb Squad, a hip hop crew consisting of two DJs, DJ Finesse and a Cleveland favorite from Italy, Coach Sheese and three MCs, the late great Wayne G, the mellow Ice T female MC, and rounding out the crew with flows himself, MC Chill. Breaking solo in the early 80s, by 85, Chill had signed a regional deal, but a chance meeting with a New York radio heavyweight will find Chill signed to Fever Records, with his self-titled LP dropping in January 1986. From hip-hop to journalism, Chill has seen theatrical stages, helped shape music culture, been able to capture stories from a unique insider to outside point of view, became influential in organizations like Kappa Alpha Psi, Greater Cleveland Association of Black Journalists, National Association of Black Journalists, African American Film Critics Association, AFCA, uh, he co-founded AFCA, uh, also Press Club of Cleveland, with multiple honors and awards to his name. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we welcome to the film review, to Hashtag TFR Podcast Live. Kevin MC Chill Heard. How you doing, Chill? Wow. What's going on? Talk <laughs> to going? me. That was that, that was nice. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we got to put it in. We got to put it in for you. You know, you are hip hop royalty here, right? This is my wife Tracy. How are MC you? Chill. This How you doing, time. Queen Tracy? Hi, Queen Tracy. Nice to meet you. Let's bring this up so I make this clear. There we go. Move you over right in the center. Okay, now we're ready to begin. First of all, how's your week been, Jill? It's been good, man. You know, we, we've been doing a lot of things. I, I, I've i done some good interviews uh, over the last week. And, 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 and thanks to you for jumping in there and, and helping me hold some of those down. But it's, it's, it's you know, it's been a, it's, it's been good to be around the house with the family. You know, we, we're doing the best we can under the circumstances and the and the uh, under the virus and all what's going on in the world with the civil unrest. But you know, we're all in here in the house and and being a family and loving each other. Okay, so we always ask people, you know, different different people from different places. Besides, we know what happened in the media earlier this week in Cleveland, but how was Cleveland sustaining? How's Cleveland, Ohio sustaining during the COVID-19 quarantine? Well, you know, lots of people are handling different ways. 
I see some people practicing social distancing. I see some people not. And, and I worry about those people to tell the truth. And I do the best I can to kind of spread the word that despite holidays or good weather or protest or civil unrest, uh, this, this virus is still out here. So, you know, be be as healthy as you can and 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 let's do what we have to do. So right. that's how we doing it around here. Okay, so let's get to it because you are the man of the two hours, right? Yes, wow. it's an honor to have you on our show. It's an honor. honor to be on the show. Okay, so let, let's get started here. Let's get started here because dun, 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 MC <laughs> Chill, Kevin Heard, this is your life. Dun, 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 <laughs> wow. or hashtag TFR Podcast Live. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Born atop a store on Cedar. You grew up on 93rd and St. Clair before your family moved to Lee Harvard residential area when you were six. What was Lee Harvard like coming up? Man, Lee Harvard uh, for a small uh, black child was amazing uh, because it was filled with uh, professionals, uh, black people who you could see who owned businesses, who did professional jobs. We had, uh, although to a small extent, not great big giant hospitals, but we had a, we had like storefront doctors. We had dentists, we had lawyers. Uh, we could see people, black people, brothers and sisters doing those jobs. And, and a lot of the educators that taught us in schools live, lived in our area. We even had black principals of, of, of our schools. So you know, to grow up in that type of environment, I can already see that it shaped uh, the, the 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 blackness in me. Uh, mm-hmm. So we could, you know, we could rise to various levels uh, that I previously hadn't seen. But it was a good place to be as a, as a as a young black child growing up in Cleveland. Yeah. So we have some video on that, you know, of uh, what the southeast side Lee Harvard area was like and how it came to be. So we're going to play this real quick. We'll be right back. Uh, even though these are small numbers of homes, uh, they're uh, very significant in terms of community pride, in terms of employing black building tradesmen. And Arthur Bussey is the uh, uh, focus of the Cleveland Restoration Society's efforts to get historic landmark designation for two streets in the Lee Harvard area. Um, he built a uh, housing on Myrtle and Highview Avenues and advertised in the call and post. You can see these brand new uh, brick bungalows being advertised here uh, at $17,500. These were on the uh, a pricier end of uh, the housing market this time. Um, and so in 1959, we had uh, Myrtle Avenue be uh, completed here. You can see that the sewers have been newly installed. In fact, Bussy himself put up the money to uh, finance the sewers for that street. As we go along here, so pretty much it's a fun fact about uh, Lee Harvard. From 1949 through the 1960s, Arthur Bussey, African-American builder, built the homes we see in Lee Harvard today. And he targeted, he targeted high-end uh, higher income blacks to move into Lee Harvard. So this is what we were seeing 
you know, coming up in Lee and Harvard, like you said, because I'm a Lee, Lee and Harvard native myself. So this is what we were seeing, and this is the back. Now here's a fun, here's another fun fact, right? I already played the video. Okay, your father helped many black businesses, business owners get loans. Talk about that for a little bit. Uh, my my dad graduated from HBCU Central State University, uh, as did my mom, where they where they met and uh, got married. But he, he he had a business degree, and so he got a job at a at a business company, a finance company, uh, downtown Cleveland, and was later uh, tagged to be uh, manager, one of the first uh, black managers of a of a national uh, loan finance company. It was Beneficial Finance, and certainly he was the first uh, African American to be a manager. Uh, of the loan company in Cleveland and and maybe uh, one of the first in the nation. So and he was operating out of uh, right off Harvard, right almost across the street, not far from not far from where John F. Kennedy High School uh, is located currently uh, in its last days. But uh, and, and as the manager of beneficial finance, he he helped a lot of black businesses. Uh, get loans to start. And I, I meet people still today to be like, yeah, your dad, I was able to start my business because your dad gave me a loan, uh, which, you know, a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't give black people back in those days. So, yeah, he was ha- able to help start some of those up and, co- up and coming businesses in the Lee Harvard area. Mm-hmm. And then your mother was a school teacher. Talk about that. Yeah, graduating with a uh, degree in education. Uh, she came to Cleveland and she she instantly got a, a job teaching at Bolton Elementary. She taught at both the old Bolton and what they call the new Bolton. So she taught she taught at Bolton Elementary School her entire uh, teaching career and retired from from teaching at Bolton Elementary School. And people around Cleveland know that's over in that Quincy, Quebec uh, area over not not far from the historic Caramu Theater or uh, Olivet. Institutional Baptist Church. Just to let you know where the where the area of Bolton was, mm-hmm. and, then, and still uh, so, is. So education was definitely stressed in your household. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and uh, yeah. My mother was 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 brutal on on uh, on lessons and 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 English and and punctuations and you know all of my friends uh, tell about about my mother. Uh, telling them about helping words and uh, would laugh to say, well, those are the words trying to help us say what we're trying to talk about. But yeah, and then my father actually, uh, while an adult with the family, uh, worked his way through uh, law school. Uh, he, he, uh, he, went, he took night classes uh, at Cleveland Marshall Law School and he graduated uh, with a law degree around the same time that I was graduating from, from middle school, from junior high school at Whitney Young. So mm-hmm. I was able to see my father even work his way uh, to a law degree. And, and my dad is, is from uh, Miami, Florida, the, you know, you know not a, a upper or middle class area. Uh, he's from the area of, of Miami, Florida called Opalaka. So okay. we know people know that is around the uh, uptown or Liberty City. Uh, that area. So, 
you know, that was the area where not a lot of not a lot of brothers were even going to college, much less uh, getting law degrees. So uh, big ups to my dad. Rest in peace. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was good to see a black man doing doing something like that. Mm-hmm. So did your parents instill into you a strong spiritual background like church every Sunday, church on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes <laughs> on Friday and Saturday, back to Sunday, Sunday, because we hear the influence in your music and some of your lyrics. Well, I, I think what you hear in in, in some of my, my music and my lyrics is more of what was to become a universal spirituality, uh, more of a uh, Afrocentric understanding and belonging. Uh, although we did, we did go to church. It wasn't it wasn't one of those deals where we were there every single day. Uh, as a matter of fact, I laugh uh, whenever I saw, I see the, the pastor, the current pastor of Lee Road Baptist Church, and I've, I've actually spoken at the church there before for different events uh, with Jack and Jill or Black History Month or something like that. And every time that I hear that it's going to be something at Lee Road Baptist Church, I say, well, you know, we I got kicked out of that church. Uh, me and my cousins, they threw us out. And I saw the pastor one time and I said, now, pastor, I'll let you know that they, they threw me out of Lee Road Baptist Church. He was like, oh, my God, when was this? So I was maybe like uh, nine years old and they told me me and my cousins never to come back. And so he said, okay, you brother, you can come back now. So I said, well, it's not official until I call my cousin, Craig and Ellis, and tell them that, that we back, that we're allowed back in the Libro Baptist Church. But yeah, no, we, you know, uh, my parents, we initially went to Antioch Baptist Church and then later on Olivet uh, Church. And, but like I said, we, you know, there were always books in the house, uh, and we always it was it was more of a, a Afrocentric spirituality that kind of was was all over uh, my upbringing. Okay. All right. So let's move forward just a little. Your cousin Keith Collins, who was one year older than you, uh, that's right. First taught you martial arts, right? Then you would. Well, we can call. We can call it teaching me. <laughs> What's that mean? He was just using you as a punching bag or a pillow or something. He was. He was officially. He even used the correct terminology. He used the Japanese terminology. He said, "Okay, uh, I'm gonna. We're gonna do karate, and you're gonna be what they call an uki. And uki or uke in in Japanese in martial arts term pretty much translates to dummy." Uh, or the object or a person that you beat on. And so Uh I was the Uki. And so, yeah, that's how my cousin got me started in martial arts. So if you want to call teaching me, just beating me down and flipping me and kicking and punching me, yeah, that's he got me started teaching. Big ups to my cousin, Keith Collins. So you started taking uh, classes out in Chardon, Ohio, right? Karate classes. You started going where he was going and you started your training, right? Did those- yeah, I, you know what? I, I started my official at a more of a lengthy time in Chardon, Ohio with the Karate Institute, a part of the Karate Institute. But I, I did take other other styles and other methods 
prior to going to Chardon, I, I, I took uh, study to study Gung Fu for a while under um, uh, some students of Master Art Grandmaster Art Sykes. Uh, studied a, a harder Japanese style Goju Ru. Uh, there was a teacher in Lee Harvard and attended uh, maybe Taekwondo uh, for a while under what was to become Cleveland Academy. And uh, and I probably studied uh, about two other places in Cleveland before I went out to Chardon, uh, mm-hmm. where my cousin was was studying at. Mm-hmm. So did these teachings teach you discipline, or was it when you got with uh, Kent Ferguson that you were taught more discipline? Then? No, no. All of those all of those schools, uh, for the most part, taught taught discipline. Uh, the the first uh, kung fu instructor that I studied with it was a brother who who was from a fine lineage of, of instructors and this this brother that taught goju ru I believe he might have studied overseas in Japan and he was a he was a tough uh, a tough brother African American uh, army type guy but he he taught us he taught us discipline uh, respect. Uh, for your opponent or any future opponent, so I, I, I learned discipline and respect uh, with some of my earlier teachers in martial arts mm-hmm. as a but youngster. It, but it was Ken that took you all the way through to getting the double black belt. <laughs> Maybe a, a, a triple OG. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, uh, I, Kim Ferguson, it was an amazing experience, uh, unlike anything I had done before. Ken wasn't a teacher in the traditional sense of martial arts instructors, but certainly was the best martial arts instructor that I could have had. And he created an environment uh, of excellence uh, that he himself uh, personified. Because when I met Ken, he was already on the United States karate team and he was like the neighborhood Jim Kelly. He had the great big afro and, you know, I, I roll up to the end. It was non-traditional sense that all those other times I actually were studying in a martial arts location, in a dojo. Uh, Ferguson taught at the rec center and for free. And to have somebody that was on the United States team uh uh, an international competitor and national champion to, to to teach you at the recreation center, the John F. Kennedy Recreation Center for free was amazing. And and the, the students there were already encultured in an I- ideology of success and winning and to always think that you were the best and he expected you to be the best and we held each other up to that standard it was i met lifetime friends that are my brothers to this very day i ended up bringing my cousin back over with us uh to to ferguson and so i i did him i i I returned i reciprocated the favor of him introducing me to martial arts and then i brought him and reintroduced him into the world of uh ken ferguson and the students that were there and 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 both of us uh, we attained lifelong friendships uh, of those people and, and with uh, Ken Ferguson. It was an amazing experience. So here's a, another fun fact about uh, Lee, Lee Harvard. While Carl Stokes was mayor, 
while he was in office, Lee Harvard residents lobbied in Columbus to keep liquor licenses out of Lee and Harvard, right? Also, they fought Mayor Stokes to keep public housing out of Lee and Harvard. Stokes called Lee and Harvard residents black bigots. They were worried about <laughs> keeping the middle class lifestyle. They didn't want to lose that. So they fought tooth and nail and that was something that was an embarrassment to Carl Stokes' uh, mayorship at the time. So, but he called them black bigots. Can you see that, Chill? Can you see where uh, he's no, that's black bigots? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to get some more information on that. Uh, and, and for the longest uh, our, our voting ward, um, our council ward in Cleveland, Ward 1, has consistently been uh, the largest voting ward uh, of all of the, certainly of all the African-American neighborhoods. Uh, we've maintained that uh, since the very beginning. And, and, and interestingly enough, the person who kind of orchestrated uh, Carl Stokes' claim to fame as a as a black politician and a and a historical uh, candidate becoming mayor was Ar- the great uh, late great Arnold Pinckney, who was the uh, was the architect. Of, he, he was the the power man behind the scenes. He was the kingmaker. Uh, he was a Lee Harvard resident, and certainly he was he was Carl Stokes' number one counsel who created that that machine that black political machine and cross. I mean, uh, Arnold Pinckney was a neighbor of mine. And for years I would tell him on my way to high school, uh, we would have to pass his house and I would, I would uh, borrow a, a newspaper, a plain dealer from off his front lawn on the way to school. And, and I mean, I, I didn't tell them this until I was an adult. And uh, he said, you know what? I was wondering what happened to my paper every week. I was calling the plain dealer straight up and down. They were not delivering my paper. So yeah, but that's interesting because that was our that was the the largest black voting block, one of the one of the largest, if not the largest, on the southeast side, and certainly uh, key to electing Carl Stokes as mayor. Now you do have to remember uh, it was it was a it was white flight uh, going on Lee Harvard in the early days, and when I when I we moved there. It was still the last holdouts of uh, of your people of European descent uh, living in Lee Harvard, you know, just hanging on tooth and nail to their property. Uh, but yeah, it, it was it was so that's that's an interesting thing. I'm I'm gonna have to check into that, bro. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's biggest, so huh? Black biggest. That's funny. Black biggest. <laughs> I I, I said, check that. Hmm. Maybe black. I'm gonna have to put my Lee Harvard people on the case on that one. We're not we're yeah, not taking yeah. that one kindly. Yeah, yeah. From um, brothers, Oaks, rest in peace, my good fraternity yeah. brother. <laughs> Back to MC Chill. This is your live on hashtag TFR Podcast Live. Everyone was used to R&B, soul, jazz, blues, gospel, and even reggae with Bob Marley, but hip hop, which is an amalgamation of those early forms of music uh, was new. What was the first song that got you interested in hip hop and what about it caught your ear? 
Well, obviously, the first song that got me interested in hip-hop was the first song, the first rap song that anyone out of New York ever heard, and that was Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. I remember hearing it, uh, and I, I thought that it was just somebody rhyming over Sheik's Good Times, which we know is the is the foundation of that of, of Rapper's Delight. And, and I was like, oh, my God, that's kind of cool that that guy is just kind of saying it. I thought that was actually somebody doing it coming out of this area that I heard until I realized that was something being played on the radio. And by the time I heard it, uh, probably three days later, everybody heard it, and we were all scrambling to get tapes. And finally, I, I got a, a recording of it, memorized almost the entire, and that, that's a long song, Rap Delight in full, man, that might, that might be about eight minutes long. Or more, but uh, you know, I memorized the entire song uh, enough to where I was ready to go out and and and, and perform a "Rapper's Delight." But soon after that, it was followed by like Curtis Blow and then Sequence, and and at that point, I was I was in, I was into this new thing called rap, and then start meeting out of town people who were who were bringing more songs, uh, early hip hop songs. By like Spoonie, uh, Spoonie G, Treacherous Three, uh, for hip hop aficionados, a lot of the old Enjoy label, the Bobby Robinson uh, label songs, and but prior to them going over the Sugar Hill label, so uh, yeah. By the time I, I got down with uh, with like the Spoonie G, which uh, was one of Cochise's, uh, who would later become uh, my first DJ. His roommate from Brooklyn was putting him on with Spoonie G. And uh, so, yeah, hearing some of those early songs, yeah, I was in, man. Oh, uh, Tanya Congress, who's mm-hmm. watching. Matter of fact, let, let's say this real quick. We are simulcasting on Periscope, YouTube, and on a certain social media site that says they don't need advertisers, but you know, Crazy on Dion page, you know. And uh, Tanya Congress on YouTube says, chill, that. The record was 15 minutes long. Rapper's 15 Delight minutes. 15 wow. 15 minutes. You know. And it was it was it was a journey. Hey, that was commitment to learn the words to that song all the way through. Right. So so here's a question for you. So let's go back because that was 1979. 1973, Cool Herc was creating the foundations of hip-hop, breaking records, taking the most funkiest parts and extending them out so people could dance to them. Grandmaster Flash mastered break beat, uh, breaking beats as it spread and reached Kent State University. Why didn't you touch the turntables? And if you did, what made you veer more towards MCing? Well, uh, by that time, uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, friends and later fraternity brothers with, with DJ Cochise and oftentimes would, would grab the mic when he was spinning. And then later on, as we formed the Bomb Squad and I became friends with my, my other DJ, uh, DJ Kit Finesse, who had come from, from, uh, from Queens, J- Jamaica, Queens, New York, through Youngstown, who who opened my eyes to the to the whole hip hop movement that was far above and beyond just a couple of rap records that I heard. But 
And then uh, Kid Finesse and I were roommates, and he was very serious about that craft. He was practicing. He was spending morning, noon, night cutting records behind his back, uh, switching hand to hand, and uh, it was an, it was amazing. So sure, I, I, I you know I, I tinkered around with the turntables. First of all, you had to to be a DJ. That was expensive. You you needed uh, you needed some twelve hundreds. You needed a fader. You needed speakers. You go buy a bunch of records. MC. You needed a microphone. But uh, yeah, but I did I did learn the basics. Of course, I learned the basics of of, of DJing, cutting records, uh, spinning records. I even won at Kent State. I won a DJ contest. Now I will say, but see, I I will say that like halfway through the contest of, of my DJ portion say that we got to spin for uh, for five minutes I probably was on the, the turntables for three minutes and then I grabbed the microphone and, and rocked out rhyming for the following two minutes so that I'm sure that swayed the crowd but uh, yeah but I, I won a DJ contest again Finesse, Finesse t- tutored me and taught me and uh and I was able to win a DJ contest at Kent State University, even though I finished out rapping throughout the contest. Okay. Well, see, there we go. See, now that's pulling back the layers oh, of the onion. I won 50 bucks. I won $50. We went out and bought some wild Irish rolls with that money and a couple of 40s. Oh, that, that was during the years when people, when when 18-year-olds could drink because they sure did change that by the time we came around. It was none of that for us. No, okay. In college. Yeah, but they had what at that time they had what they called three two beer. You could, you know, you it was the it was the 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 beer that that had less alcohol content. But you know, we made our way to making sure we were able to get get the kind of the kind of beer we needed. Okay. This college Kent State's a college town. You can make it happen. Yeah. So Lonnie B, DJ Lonnie B, let you rock on the mic at the Rathskeller. From there, you developed your own rhymes, becoming a member of the Bomb Squad, and your, let me turn the page. You got that information, bro. Huh? What, beg your pardon? You got the information. You have that information. You done did your research, I'm a researcher. I'm a researcher, yes. That's Okay, so you became a Bomb a uh, member of the bomb squad and the earthquake happened when DJ Cochise won the club style show DJ battle which ushered in hip hop to Cleveland later affording you the opportunity to flow on WDMT FM what was that like and when did you know you derived man that was amazing uh, when Cochise won the club style show uh, at WDMT FM 108, the, the world changed. Uh, it was like a tsunami of hip hop occurring uh, on a Cleveland level. I, I always I tell anybody that is the day that hip hop in Cleveland became a community. That's when that's when we had arrived at a at a hip hop community uh, connected citywide, and Cochise was the was no doubt the catalyst of that of that movement, but uh, what what ended up happening is what he won 
was he got a, a plaque and, and applause and he was the king. But he also won a full uh, club style show the following week. So as a, as a member of the Bomb Squad, we came on with him as a full out crew the next week. And, and certainly because such a commotion had occurred during Cochise winning this club style show, everybody tuned in uh, to, to hear his full show. And that's when he introduced uh, the Bomb Squad. And so we showed up, myself, Cochise, Kip Finesse, MC Wayne G. And uh, it was it was odd because one, nothing like that had ever happened on Cleveland Radio and they weren't even sure how to to mic us. We certainly all couldn't fit in the in the DJ booth room. So mm-hmm. we set up, they set up a microphone out in the hallway without any, you know, no speaker. So we couldn't even really hear the record, you know, because it's not the radio station not built for that. The DJ has headphones and he can hear the beat. So we hooked up a system where Cochise would kind of nod his head and snap to the beat. One person had headphones on and we all kind of caught the rhythm of that person without really hearing the music. You could hear it faintly. But we still rocked out and we became instant celebrities. Uh, it's like we had records out from that point on. Uh, we became known citywide as the Bomb Squad. And my, my tagline was chill, like 40 below. And I had it on the back of T-shirts. And Cochise has told the story with the Randall Park Mall. And he had, he had a shirt that said, Cochise, ooh, to the beat. And I had a shirt that said... Uh, bomb squad chill like 40 below and we went out to Randall Mall and got mobbed like we were you know straight up recording celebrities so Cochise tells the story that's when he knew that it was a big deal and it was also you know when I knew it was a big deal when people knew us and asked us for autographs when we went out to Randall Park Mall mm-hmm. And then uh, Centipede just said, what's up, Lord D and MC Chill? He just shouted out to him. My man Centipede from the mighty Supreme team. Centipede, if he's listening, man. don't you ever act like your crew was better than the Bomb Squad. No, that's that's an inside joke between myself and Centipede. And then MKM later, Master Kappa. Master Kappa Mixers, for sure. That's right. Um, it's 1984, you're in college, you're rapping, and you should secure a regional record deal with Plum City Records, founded by the late great Jimmy Stevens. Jimmy Stevens, Plum Place. Plum, Plum Place. That's right, Plum Place. Plum Place Records. That's right. Um, but your dude Red, who was known for being affiliated with the OJ's, asked, "Who was in charge of the rap shit?" Is that, is that right? <laughs> yes, well, well, this was prior to us signing with, with Jimmy Steven, Stevens, better known to old school people from his, his WABQ days as Jimmy Scorpio Stevens. Okay. Uh, prior prior to that, uh, while rocking with the band, Red was in a band at Kent State University uh, with uh, most notably um, uh, uh, McKinney, he plays. He played keyboards for the OJ's and and Levert Niles McKinney, and uh, 
and Red Plate Congas. Uh, and, and I think Kevin Conwell might have, who later is Councilman Kevin Conwell, was also playing drums. But uh, sometimes I would rock out with the band, which the band had really never seen a rapper just kind of kind of rock with the band. And uh, so Red having that 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 OJ's background from from the Eddie the Eddie Big Big Vert as we call him Big Vert uh, the, the, that camp. Uh, he he was like, well, you know, how do we let's get into this thing? And, and certainly, I remember the quote as him saying, "Well, who's in charge of this rap shit?" Like it was like a club that you know, like we had a president or something. And mm-hmm. I remember, I was like, "Well, the best I can tell you is this dude that's really making stuff happening, making stuff happening uh, by the name of Russell Simmons right now." Mm-hmm. But this was at the very beginning of Def Jam, at the infancy of uh Def Jam. And we we like looked up the number in the Black United Students office. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, this was before, you know, you had cell phones and whatnot. I think we called the operator and mm-hmm. got the number to Def Jam. And this is how early in the game it was. LL Cool J answered the phone uh okay. at the Def Jam office. And so that began our process of of getting a demo made because they was like, well get us a demo and that led us so, so to L, Jimmy Stevens. So LL um, picked up the phone, but you spoke to Russ and Rick, right? And he told right. We you talked to we 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 talked to Russell. We talked to LL because Red was like, "Okay, if somebody answering a phone named Cool J," and I was like, "LL, who had one record out at the time, uh, I need a beat." One uh-huh. LL had one record out, and I was familiar with with the one record, and uh, so yeah, we talked to we talked to a couple people. We talked to Russell, uh, and we talked to Tony Rome, and we talked to a couple of people over. The, Def Jam was was small then; it wasn't you know the juggernaut that it later became. But yeah, we end up talking to Russell, and we end up talking to Tony Rome for sure. I can't tell you if we talked to Rick or not. Uh, I know I didn't, but I remember talking to LL initially, and we talked to Russell, and we talked to uh, Tony Rome. So they said, get a demo. And you were like, get a demo? So the only guy you heard that was even close to a hip-hop sound was Mike Nice, Mike Chapman. And this is what you heard come over the airwaves in 83. So of course that's Project 5. Project 5, Synergy. Uh, by Synergy on Time Tracks Records uh, produced by Mike Chapman and three other people but an incredible groove everybody was listening to it in Cleveland and then how did you and Red go about finding Mike Chapman? Well first of all I like to give big ups too because not only even on that that Synergy cut uh, as, as I look at who were the 
who were the writers of that song. Obviously, M. Chapman was Mike Chapman. But then there's a T. Thomas, which is Trent Thomas, who also uh, was the other writer of my album. So it was a combination of Mike Chapman and Trent Thomas. Uh, a lot of those good chords and keys that you hear in, in a lot of those first uh, MC Chill songs was Trent Thomas uh, on keyboards. But uh, yeah, so when when we started looking for producers, and, and Red, of course, being being from that that background of uh, the music machine of of the OJ's, he was like, okay, well, we need a producer, and there weren't hip hop producers like that even in the city because this was still still new. And so I knew that Mike Chapman was involved with production on that uh, Synergy project. Wasn't quite hip hop, but he was the he was the producer that I knew, and it was going to be close enough. So we we uh we tracked Mike Chapman down at this point. He had just left to college. He was a freshman at Ohio State University. We didn't we didn't have a phone number. We didn't know where he lived. He didn't know who we were. We rented a car, drove to Columbus, rolled up at Ohio State, the Ohio State University, which if anybody didn't there, the campus of Ohio State University is humongous. So imagine us rolling up with just a name. We're looking for Mike Chapman. I mean, it's a billion people to go to Ohio State University. And uh, finally, we narrowed it down. He was a freshman. There's like most of the freshmen live over in this building. The building was the freaking size of Terminal Tower. So it's humongous. <laughs> and uh, we were able to work our hand. So we got a little specific light-skinned guy. He's from Shaker. You know, kind of little dude, quiet guy. Oh, okay, I think we know who he is. So we end up finding Mike Chapman. And he opens the door, sees us, and he recognizes me as a member of the Bomb Squad. He's like, oh, that's MC Chill from the Bomb Squad. And uh, so we tell him that we're working on a project because by now we had connected up with Jimmy Stevens. And uh, so we we told him we needed we needed some, some tracks. And so he said, well, he had some tracks already with him that he had been working on. So he played, he played about six, six songs for us that day in his dorm room at Ohio State and probably three of those songs were already the tracks that would probably become MC Story, Prophecy and maybe Children's Rhymes or something like that. But at least three of those songs that we heard that day became album songs on the MC Chill album. Mm -hmm. So being the first MC doing hip hop and you know it started in uh, New York and they had a head start but what was studio recording like yeah. first uh, it was it was a little special uh, okay. because you know they had never studios recording studios in Cleveland had never had really had uh, somebody coming to do rap records so it was an issue of how to even uh, do the levels and do the sound and and uh, you know we, we come in with a DJ scratching records mm -hmm. they never had a DJ scratching records uh, in the studio before so it was even an issue of how to connect the sound system to the turntables uh, 
And to top it off, we had a human beatbox. I have Beatmaster T with me. So that's a, that's another problem of how to, to connect the microphone and the sounds and the levels to a human beatbox. So nevertheless, they hadn't done, you know, levels just for somebody rapping. They've done it for people singing. They've done it for musical instruments. But this hip hop thing in Cleveland at, at a, a full out professional studio was was brand new. So we, we, we were the prototypes for people to later come to recording studios like 24 track, 48 track recording studios trying to make hip hop records. So it was it was different. It was a new experience for me. One never been in a studio and it was different for the studio itself trying to figure out how to deal with this whole thing that was this new shift, this paradigm that was to come that would later be called hip hop. Mm. So then Mike Chapman started working at WDMT FM 108 and called you to let you know that Mr. Magic, radio personality and promo uh, promoter of hip hop was in Cleveland. So you rolled with Mike to pick him up from the airport and what happened next? Super rocking Mr. Magic. Mr. Magic pretty much created the rap radio format on the planet. Uh, he started at a college station, but later uh, parlayed a gig at WBLS in New York City, one of the premier African-American radio stations. And hip-hop, as far as, as radio station through New York, became like a thing under Mr. Magic. And uh, Mr. Magic became so popular, everybody's duty, if you were a hip-hop artist in New York, you tried to get Mr. Magic to play your tape. The group Houdini named themselves Houdini because of Mr. Magic. Uh, Magic Houdini is a magician, so they named themselves Houdini because they were hooked up with Mr. Magic. And Mr. Magic also nickname is Sir Juice, which the Juice crew, which later became, you know, a large conglomerate of uh, of hip hop artists, were that name, the Juice crew, was in honor of of Mr. Magic. And most people know uh, his shoulder rap attack because his engineer and his DJ on the show was the legendary DJ Molly Maul. So mm-hmm. Molly Maul was the DJ on the show, on the rap attack, where Mr. Magic was the host. So yeah, Mike, who had been working up at 108 uh, as an engineer and had done some of the most incredible master mixes. And I'm not talking about on turntables, I'm talking about actually cutting and splicing real tape. Real to real, rook, 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 cut, paste, bow. And uh, he uh, he did some of the most incredible, legendary master mixes in that station. Uh, to watch somebody do master mixes that way, man, that was unbelievable. Uh, anyway, we could get to that. But yeah, so Mike goes to pick up. He calls me up. He said, you want to go pick up Mr. Magic in the WDMT van? And I'm like, hell yeah. Sir Juice, Mr. Magic from the world famous Super Rock and Mr. Magic's Rap Attack? You damn right, I'm in. So we pick up Mr. Magic, and he has with him Roxanne Shante, who had just, you know, just come out. She's like 14 years old, and she had just come out. And with him 
uh, at the time was my my big who later became my big bro, who is still my big bro, Tyrone Williams, who was uh, worked with Mr. Magic, uh, worked with him advertising the show and promoting hip hop. But later, that Tyrone Williams became Fly Ty, the uh, owner and executive producer of Cold Chillin' Records, which is why we even know Big Daddy Kane. And, and, and Shantae ended up being on Cold Chilling Records and, and Cool G Rap. So, and so, but he, that had yet to happen. But so, Fly Tie, Tyrone Williams, Mr. Magic, and Roxanne Shantae, we go pick them up. Mike Chapman throws in, because by now we were working on, on my demo, because I had actually signed the agreement with Jimmy Stevens Sr. Uh, for Plum, Plum Blakes for his regional deal. And and Mr. Magic hears like the first song, which might have been Buster's Rhyme or Prophecy or uh, Children's Rhymes or something like that. And he's like, because you know, he's Mr. Magic. He, he's he's who hip hop comes through at this point in time. And he's like, who is this? Like, I never even heard this group. Who is this? And so Mike says, oh, that's, that's chill. He looks in the back of the van. He said, that's you, bro? I'm like, yeah, yeah. He was like, okay, you rap like that. I'm like, yeah. He said, how many songs on there? I said, probably about four or five. He said, who produced it? So I point back up to Mike. And so he's in the front seat with Mike. And he looks over like, okay, I see what's going on here. We got the MC. We got the producer. The tape jumps in. All right, I get it. So then he asked the question, do you have a deal? Now, while the actual answer was yes, in my mind, I understood the gravity of the situation and what he was actually asking me. What he was actually asking me was, do you want a deal? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could have easily said, well, yeah, I have a regional deal, blah, 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 blah. But cut to the chase. He said, do you have a deal? I said, no. And uh, that would be something that I would have to work out later on with Jimmy. But uh, so he takes my tape back home with him. And uh, and and I, I'll tell people now when I watch, you know, they, all things are connected. And uh, this is a small world. And when I watch the, uh, the Roxanne Shantae uh, movie on Netflix, I realized that all of the little things that I see her going through actually connects inevitably to me. When she's walking past her uh, projects in Queens, the Queens Bridge projects, and Molly Mall is yelling out the window, Shantae, I want you to come back and do this recording for me. And she's saying, I gotta go to the laundromat. I'm at home like, like watching it on TV. Like, girl, you better get your little ass back there and record that song. Because <laughs> I realized if she don't go back and record that song, that MC Chill is living in a different world. And uh, so in the movie, she gets in a van with Mr. Magic and Fly Tide, and they're saying they're going out to promote the song. And, you know, as far as I know, they're getting in that van, going to the airport, and landing in Cleveland, Ohio, where they meet me and Mike Chapman. So all things are, you know, connected like that. And people need to recognize that whole butterfly effect. But uh, so yeah, he calls me back. Explain to people the butterfly effect, so they have an understanding of what that is. 
they call it the butterfly effect because it, it recognizes that the smallest thing can change the entire world. All things are connected. So the butterfly flapping his wings may seem like a very small thing, but it may push a speck of dirt or some air that moves a flower or changes the direction of an insect that bites a person, that makes him scratch to go get something to, to solve the scratch. He meets a person at CVS who he connects with and, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. So I recognized that that was part of my butterfly effect, uh, what, whatever was the experience of Roxanne Shante. So about two weeks after we give uh, Mr. Magic the tape, I'm in Washington, D.C. At, uh, at a national conference with my fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi. Uh, big up to the notes, yo Kappa. But anyway, I, uh, I'm, in, I'm in D.C. and I get a call, you know, this is prior to cell phones. I don't know how my mama found me. And because uh, I'm, I'm over at Georgetown, you know, getting it in and rocking the mic and partying. And uh, somehow I get back to my, my hotel room and it's a message saying, hey, your mother said call her. You got to come home right now. You got a record deal. I'm like, what? So I call my mom. She's like, yeah, you know, you got a record deal with Fever Records. Come home now. I had just gotten to DC. It was a seven day conference convention. I'd been there for like two days and uh, took my ass back to Cleveland. And uh, just, just, you know, and of course we had to deal with, with the contract that I had already signed. But Jimmy Stevens was really good about it. He was a really good dude. Rest in peace. He wasn't happy because he had his own idea of how he wanted to launch his new record label. He wanted to do it with a, a hip because Jimmy had worked with all kinds of groups. As a matter of fact, he brought in it for the people who, who, who may go back and hear some of my songs on Prophecy. It's this killer piano solo. And that's uh, Kevin Kendricks from Cameo. And Kevin Kendricks came in the studio and laced a piano solo. And uh, and they were like, man, that was incredible. Can you can we do it one more time? Man, he did it again almost the exact same way. It was nuts. But, you know, that was people that Jimmy brought in. And uh, so Jimmy had his own ideas of what he wanted to do. And this wasn't it. But he understood this was a national deal, and uh, he was gracious enough to acquiesce to me signing the deal with, with Fever Sutra Records. And he still maintained a executive producer role along with Sal Abatiello, owner of the Fever label, as well as the iconic club, the Fever. So yeah, but that that's, that's where it took off from. Mm -hmm. So... You already told how much. So, for context, Crush Groove had just come out, and the whole movie was about trying to get to the Fever nightclub, the Disco Fever, to try to get a deal. And here you are. Someone calls you on the phone. You say, and then you get back and they say, Fever Records, because you had fainted. What what, what happened? What happened? Well, first of all, I, first of all, the movie had not come out. It they had, they wrapped, but the movie hadn't come out yet. After I, you know, 
when I got the deal with Fever Records, the movie hadn't come out yet. It was just about to come out. Uh, but certainly, I knew of the legendary South Bronx Club Disco Fever, which people just, you know, refer to as the Fever. The Fever is, it was the preeminent uh, hip hop club, the first, they call it the first hip hop club of note uh, in the South Bronx, obviously, where hip hop was born. And uh, it was one of the first clubs to let hip hop artists, DJs, MCs come from the parks uh, to to the uh, to in, indoors to the club. Now there were other there were other clubs, hip hop clubs, but the Fever became the preeminent spot. Uh, Love Bug Starsky, which became an, an artist who was famous in the in the parks. He was famous for rapping and DJing often at the same time and, and had the anthem on Fever Records live at the Fever. But uh, so I certainly knew the history of the Fever and the label Fever Records. And the, the funny thing to me is when the movie came out, I'd already been signed to Fever Records and the entire roster of Fever Records was in the movie Crush Group. Everybody, even people who only had one, one, a one-off, one record on Fever Records the bouncer was in the movie. Mandingo was at the door. The DJs, all the talent. I was the only artist on Fever Records that wasn't in the movie. But uh, but I went to see the movie. Uh, me and Kiffin Ness went to see it at, at Kent State. And uh, and certainly I knew half of the people. But yeah, the movie, the fat boy spent the whole movie trying to get into the Fever to get a record deal. And Run DMC spent half of their time at the Fever Russell trying to get Run DMC's his his brother's record played at the Fever because the word around New York was your record is never going to be a hit if it doesn't hit at the Fever. So okay. the so Fever was some, very influential in hip hop. So let's get this a little context here. Let's hear from the man himself. Right, my next guest up tonight, as I said, is a special treat. He's known as one of the pioneers in Latin hip hop freestyle and rap. He's also the CEO of Fever Records and Fever Enterprises. Let's give him a late night welcome for Sal Abatello. I noticed an upcoming, you know, urban black young generation coming up after the Motown people that were discovering their own sound and their own place, you know, here in, in New York. Mm -hmm. And I kept hearing people talking over the music. So we opened up this disco in the Bronx called Disco Fever in 1977, but it was an R&B club. Mm -hmm. And, um, at the end of the night, this guy, Sweet G, would get up and he would do rhymes, nursery rhymes. And I was watching the audience's reaction. And he had complete control over the whole nightclub. If he told them to say, say, ho, oh, the whole place said, ho, oh, throw your hands up. I'm like, wow, well, how great is this that this guy is dictating and making the whole place feel as one person? You know, like all complete strangers yeah. now are acting together and they're interacting with, you know, looking at each other and smiling and talking. And it made such a great atmosphere. So I approached him. I said, what is this? He says, oh, it's called, uh, you know, emceeing and rapping. And I said, well, where can I see this? So he said, let's, you know, who's the biggest one? He said, Grandmaster Flash. Sal. So that is a given a little context, right? So you travel to NYC to sign with Fever Records. The first MC from CLE to sign a major deal and the first MC that was non-coastal to sign the Fever Records. What was 
I'm New York City like at the time? The Bronx, and what was that feeling? Tell us that feeling, that nervous energy. What was that like? First of all, I was probably the first non-Bronx person to sign with Fever Records. Not just, not just. I don't know if they even had somebody not from the Bronx, much less not from New York or the East Coast or any coast. I might have been the first non-Bronx person to sign with Fever Records because they were had such a tie uh, to the bedrock, to the foundation of, of the movement of the Bronx, which later became the hip hop movement. But it was, it was, it was, I was excited. I was excited to go to New York to take on because I wasn't new. I wasn't a new MC by this time. Uh, I had rocked many rhymes, many, many stages, many parties. Uh, I was a couple years into this. So I wasn't a, a new MC. So it wasn't from the MCing part, but you know, but tackling New York, I knew was gonna be something different, not just for me, but for them. Uh, New York was really territorial at the time. They didn't they didn't play uh, other people's records. They didn't rock the other people's records. You didn't go to New York and do shows from somewhere else. So. Uh, I knew that that was going to be a challenge. I didn't know how much, but but what I was excited most of all was knowing, I already knew that I was instantly, that I was going to be a part of hip hop history with the fever. It, 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 I could have signed with a larger label, uh, a major label, but being associated with, with fever records put me right in the middle of the foundation of the culture that became hip hop. So I knew that was historical right then and there. And to go going to New York and in Manhattan and signing the deal and going to the Bronx and going to the fever was two different things. Uh, because it was the, the, the people who uh, produced and distributed uh, the fever label was Suture Records. And that was part of a larger conglomerate that was Buddha, the Gladys Knight and the Pips were on, uh, the Sunnydale, Sunny View, which uh, uh, New Edition started out on. Uh, even They even distributed uh, the, the early Sugar Hill records. So it was a part of a larger, but it was a big Manhattan movement. And so going going uptown, going to Manhattan and, and, and dealing with the record company, that was exciting. That was big time Manhattan, uh, money making Manhattan moves. But going to the South Bronx and going to the Fever, that was a whole different animal. Uh, you know, you had to prove yourself. You had to prove that you had a love for for hip hop, for the culture, uh, for what it was. And of course, I went through the whole thing of it was like I was an alien to those people in New York. I sounded funny. Uh, I, I, I talked different. Uh, I had a, a different mannerisms because New York has a, a very distinct swag, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they dress. So uh, I provided lots of entertainment by the way I spoke uh, to two people from New York and the other artists. But I think what they did understand was my love for hip hop, my love for the culture and for the art of rapping. And I think that's what 
kind of ingratiated myself to that to that New York audience and the New York culture of hip hop. Mm -hmm. So explain the question. Was Cleveland a street in the Bronx? <laughs> so, you know, when you go to when you go to the Bronx and, you know, I'm the new kid on the label uh, and you have all of these pioneers like you just heard uh, Sal talking about Sweet G. Uh, I saw and I actually I just talked to Sweet G maybe about two weeks ago. Uh, ironically, somebody that I knew, uh, brother was on the golf course in South Carolina, something like that. He said that they knew me and I was a rapper. And they like, oh, this dude I'm with, like, is an OG rapper, Sweet G. And I guess Sweet G was like, MC Chill. And we end up talking. But uh, so you go there and you got a roster of like Sweet G, uh, Love Bug, Starsky, Jigalette, and all and, and a lot of, and all of these people coming through. Uh, the Fever, Curtis Blow, uh, Grandmaster Flash, and The Furious Five. A lot of these cats, like Flash and all them, them was Bronx cats. And uh, so I come to The Fever, I guess it's automatically assumed that possibly I'm from the Bronx. And so when they say, where are you from? And I say, Cleveland. They're looking like, is that a street in the Bronx? Like, where the hell is what part of what part of the Bronx? What type? What part of the boogie down is that? And uh, I'm like, no, Cleveland, Ohio. They like, you gotta be, you kidding, right? You playing? No, no, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, that's where you were born, but what part of the Bronx do you live in? No, no, I, I live in Cleveland, Ohio. I got on the plane from Cleveland. I flew here. I'm here from Cleveland. So that that took a little getting used to, because that again, that had never. That had really never happened. Never before had a distinct New York label signed a non-New Yorker. So it was, you know, not just Fever, but any of those 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 old classic uh, labels. Most of those people were New York people, and so this was this was kind of something new. Now there were a few anomalies, distinct anomalies, because like sequence. Technically, I think which uh, uh, Angie Stone ended up being an original member of the group sequence. That group, although they were uh, a, uh, they were a fixation in a fixture in the Bronx and in the Fever, they were technically, I think, from South Carolina or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, but prior, other than that, like an anomaly like that, they had really never seen a non-New Yorker kind of get in the mix like that. So you never had seen somebody calling soda pop. Because it's pop. It's not soda. Yeah, right. Baking That's soda. Yeah, you go to New York talk about you want to pop, you got a you got a you got a whole problem of of linguistics happening. <laughs> so you signed the fever records, you're recording your first album. You come to a song, MC Story, that has a 12-bar feature. Names are suggested, but one name makes your eyebrows go up. Who was that, and what happened when he arrived at the studio? Quad recording studios in particular. Yeah, that's 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 one of my greatest hip hop moments, and I, you know, that's a story that I've told told time and time and time again, and and probably will be telling into my last days.
But yeah, it was a it was a collab spot available on MC Story. We had already we we broke out with uh, with Buster's Rhyme, which which came out big. It hit the Billboard charts, and uh, and so we had to determine what was going to be the follow up song. And so we it was decided that MC Story would be the follow up song. And MC Story, and, and I, people have heard me, most people, some people have heard me tell this, that that, that song was, is always near and dear to my heart because I kind of write my feelings about what it felt like to me at the time to be an MC, to w- what it meant to for me to be an MC, or what I thought all MCs should feel about being an MC. And, and and I even said at the beginning of the song, I wrote this story not just for me, but for all who long to become MCs, for those who know and who understand how good it feels with a mic in your hand. Uh, if you're down and you know it, you're not just a poet or just anybody here with a mic in your face. You're the heart of the street, a king of the beat, a slave to the rhythm that rocks the place. So it was, it was a full-out story about what I felt to be an MC. So when we... And they weren't doing a lot of collabs at that time. So we kind of going over the connects that the that Sutra Fever has. And, you know, names came up. Uh, Roxanne Shante, because obviously that was the connect that even got the whole MC Chill thing going as a national artist. Uh, I might have brought up Run DMC. And they looking at me like, yeah, you kind of reached on that one, kid. You know, they were like the biggest group on the planet and they like yeah yeah we'll, we'll ask but yeah we don't think that's gonna happen for you and we even talked about uh curtis blow for a minute and uh and i would have loved that because you know curtis blow represented to me uh a, a pioneer of hip-hop and i would have been just as honored to have uh curtis blow on the song and then i think sal Either was Sal or uh, or um, uh, I forgot the guy that was operating uh, Sutra Records at the, at the time, but he might have brought up Melly Mel, and he kind of casually said it, and I'm like, whoa, hold on, wait, we can I can get Melly Mel, and they kind of look like, yeah, yeah, you can get Mel. Would you want Melly Mel? I mean, in the thought, I guess was that, you know, it was so many new school groups out, Run DMC, Houdini, Fat Boys. Fat Boys were, were label mates of mine on, on, on Sutra Records, as well as as uh, Kid and Play was on Sutra Records, but they weren't called Kid and Play at the time. Uh, that would be a later a later change of their names, uh, Kid, Cool Out, and Playboy. And when they left Sutra Records, they just shortened their names to Kid and Play, but they were called the Fresh Force Crew. But they were label mates of mine, and we interacted all the time, as well as I did with with the Fat Boys. But uh, so there was kind of Mel was was kind of old school, and we were talking about new school. And man, I, I hold Melly Mel in the highest regards. And of course, now you know they were the first group as a member of the Grandmaster Flash, the Furious Five, and first group inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But this was previous, obviously, to that. Uh, you know the man who 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 made the song the message, uh, and his lyrics in the message and prior song super rapping, 
a child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind, changed the whole trajectory of hip hop. Because prior to that, Cat's talking about, you know, going to parties and and, and who got the, the most women and the flyest cars and, and mail breaks that. It changes the game. So I, I held Melly Mel in the highest regards of one of the greatest rhyme writers. I suggest anybody go back and watch Beat Street. And when he hits the stage with the second part of that, that Beat Street song, Beat Street Breakdown, and he hits those lyrics, uh, newspaper burning in the sand and the headline reads, man destroys man. I'm like, man, this cat is, is one of the greatest of all time. So they suggested that Melly Mel could be the person. And I was fine. I was, I was, I was delirious, ready to do a backflip. And then they say, <laughs> but we don't want to uh, pay Mel any record royalties. We're not doing with songwriters agreements. We're not messing with Mel about none of that. So you're going to have to write his lyrics. And I'm like, excuse me? Say that again. They're like, yeah, yeah, just go ahead. And I don't think they understood the, the code of the MC. And I don't think they were asking me to write lyrics. First of all, MCs don't write other MCs' lyrics. A real MC writes his own lyrics. And much less, one of the greatest rhyme writers in the history of hip hop. How, is, how they asking you to, how they asking me to write rhymes for the cat who wrote the message? And I'm like, eh. And they was like, no, no, we'll talk to Mel. We're just going to give him, you know, a, a stack of cash and he'll be fine with it. And so I'm like, man, so needless to say, I stayed up nights trying to write out those bars for Melly Mel. I mean, it was a it was a task. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I had confidence in myself as a rhyme writer, especially in the ideology, the style uh, of of Melly Mel. But, you know, just it just something just didn't seem right about it. So. Obviously, we hit the studio. Mel walks into Quad Studios uh, for people. And I tell people Quad Studios later became famous because that's the studio that Tupac got shot at. One of those. He got shot a couple times, but one of those times. Uh, Mel walks in looking all like Melly Mel. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's Melly Mel. And he walks in and he says, let me hear the track so I can write my rhymes. And I'm like, Ugh. They didn't tell him. They didn't tell him because he probably Apparently, wouldn't have, he probably wouldn't have even <coughs> came if they had told him that somebody else was writing this rhyme. So he had to wait until they got him in there and it was almost like an ambush or something, something like that. I would assume that there was no way that Mel was agreeing to let someone else write his rhymes, much less a dude who he never heard of, didn't know a non-New Yorker, a kid from Cleveland writing rhymes for the greatest rhyme writer of our times? Yeah, I can say that he probably didn't know that. And uh, and so he said, let me, let, me, let me hear the track so I can write my rhymes. And so Mike Chapman says, oh no, well, your rhymes are already written. Man, you should have seen the look on Mel's face. It was incredulous, like, what was that you just said? He said, yes, your rhyme's already written. Oh, he thought that was funny as hell. He was, he was with another person. I don't know who the other guy was, but they were cracking up. And so he says, who? Who wrote my rhymes? 
And I'm sitting there looking like, man, could y'all let that man let that man hit a track and, and, and give him a piece of paper and let him write his rhyme? And so Mike Chapman says, chill, chill wrote your rhyme. He looks at me. He gave me that N-word, please look. And uh, and I, I had the OMG, WFT, WTF look. And uh, so he laughed. So, so saying, let me... So for the non P for the for the non G and the non P G, what exactly did Mel say when he looked over at you? He said, "He said, like, who in the fuck wrote my rhymes?" <laughs> <laughs> and and I did not raise my hand. <laughs> and, and did so something else come saying, out like? Did something else come out like? After he saw, after they pointed at you and, you and he said, are you fucking kidding me? He didn't say it, but that's how he looked at me. Oh, okay. And he okay. laughed. He mm. laughed. He laughed a good laugh. Him and his boy was cracking up. Like, are you out of your damn mind? Do you know who I am? And uh, so Mike, man, I was mortified. And... Uh, Mike Chapman, I, I call this the day Mike Chapman saved my life. Mike Chapman said, well, I'll tell you what. Let's listen to the track. Because my vocals had already, I had already been, I was already, my, my lyrics were already on the track. And so he said, let's listen to the track. Listen to what Chill wrote for himself. And then you kind of, before we show you the lyric that he, that he wrote for you. And they kind of like, yeah, whatever. And so they, they played the a track. And you know they hear the lyrics. I, I hit some of the, the how the song starts, and you know, and some of the lyrics. Second verse: uh, To be an MC is to be the street. To think to the rhythm of a different beat. To be an MC is to be in love. Let the star travel far with the rhymes above. To be the kings of rock like Run DMC. To have the power of Kumo D. To have the class of Jekyll and Hyde. To be pioneers like the Furious Five. To roll the world like Curtis Blow. Your name in lights everywhere you go. To make the whole world a hip-hop believer. Have your name on the board at the Disco Fever. Mel is looking like, hmm, okay. And we're in the studio, right? So anybody been in a recording studio, that's the best your song is ever going to sound. Because we're in the studio. And it's, you know, towering speakers, the crispest sound, the bass is booming. That's the best your song will ever sound in the studio. So Mel, here's the in the studio version of MC Story. And uh, his boy looks over at him and says, don't front Mel, that shit was dope. And so Mel says, okay, let me see what you wrote for me. But it had a whole different tone to it. It had a, a respectful tone. Because before, it had, had a, you got to be kidding me. Let me see the bullshit that you wrote for me, Tom. <laughs> now it was like, okay, all right, let me see what you wrote for me. I, I pull out this uh, yellow legal pad, uh, and I hand it to him. He looks at it, and then he says, give me a pencil. And I'm like, okay, I'm thinking it's going to work. I think he's going to say this. He's making, he's going to make some changes. But he's going to, it's going to happen. So he he takes it and he you know he and he he he's okay he goes in the booth and he 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 says the lyrics that I wrote word 
for a word, except at the end, I wrote, uh, and I, I, I go by Grandmaster Melly Mel, and he changed it to, and my code is Grandmaster Melly Mel. He, his change was to put the word code in there. Mm -hmm. C-O-D-E was the change that he made. And uh, he was so hyped about the lyrics and the project and to hear the song, uh, you know, because he's hearing the hook. The girls are singing one, two, three in the place to be. Uh, right or wrong, they will sing your song. You were sworn to be born the Supreme MC. He's with it. Then he says, okay, that's it. Let's do some more. And I'm looking like, what you mean let's do some more? He says, come in the booth with me and I'll say, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, ask me how did I get started? And then I'll say, I seen Hurt back in 76. And then I'm going to ask you, how'd you get in the record business? And you say whatever you wanted to say. And I end up saying, I just want to tell my story. And he said, and then we'll both do the, the, the rap hook because the rap hook was creating a world which is made of words where a portion of our lives sometimes can't be heard. We're living in lyrics, looking for glory, and it all can be found in an MC story. So he was like, okay, we'll do that part. And and I'll say, we're living in lyrics, like with that Melly Mel voice. And I say, looking for glory. And then we both say, and it all can be found in an MC story. And so I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to go into the booth with Melly Mel. And so we go in, we, we knock it out. And he's like, is that it? Is it? I'm like, I, I think that's it, bro. And he was like, all right. He, you know, he gave me a pound and a dap and and he left. And I was like, man, this was in the books. Like, I don't care what happens after this. I got Melly Mel on a song with me. I don't care if it sells you, two, two copies. I'm going to tell you, the, uh, Gwen Jackson for the story gave four, <coughs> four fists, four black fists up. Right? So, Sister Gwen. Could, could you say that um, you're the first ghostwriter? Well, first of all, I would never, I would, I would never claim that I ghost wrote for Melly Mel. Uh, I mean, it, it just sounds wrong for me to, to say that. Uh, it's not something that Mel asked me, certainly that he asked me to do, that we arranged. Uh, he thought it was ridiculous at the initial notion. So, and, so, I mean, I guess you could say that. But I have way too much respect for the process and for Mel to say I ghost wrote for him because that sounds even crazy that Melly Mel would need a ghost writer. So, I mean, if somebody else says that, I would still kind of push back on that because of the way that it sounds and, and the feel that it has to it. Technically, I guess that could be what it is, but... You know, it was a situational thing that I'm I'm just blessed that he agreed to and went along with. And I'm just happy that it worked out the way it did. Mm -hmm. So you've written all the songs, recorded the songs, uh, recorded and mixed and mastered the record. The single Bust This Rhyme drops on the airwaves in Cleveland in 1985. The 85. Momentum is, late 85 late 85 the momentum is building but an altercation at the chic nightclub leaves you unconscious after being struck from behind and thought to be left for dead a 
was dead. And people said MC Chill was dead. Uh, people said, wow, that was quick. <laughs> we finally got our first rapper out of Cleveland to go national. He, the song played for two weeks, like 20 times a day. And two weeks later, he's dead. Uh, yeah, I, I got in. I was in. It's funny because what led up to it is I went to the Richfield Coliseum to see a wrestling match. Uh, Hulk Hogan versus Jesse the Body Ventura. Uh, and uh, left left the Coliseum, was trying to go home. Uh, my my fraternity brother, roommate, like, let's stop at the at the Sheik real quick. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I had been drinking a bunch of, of beers, watching the wrestling match. And I'm like, eh, I really want to go home. So he said, well, let's just stop in the Sheik for a hot second. I walk into the Sheik, and it's like, MC Chill, man. MC, they like announced it. MC Chill's in the house. You know, I'm, I'm two weeks in to the first national rapper out of Cleveland, so it's like a big ruckus when mm-hmm. I when I walk in, and people are buying me drinks, and and it, you know, it's it's love in the club. And uh, then somebody tells me, "Yo, your manager Red is downstairs, and it seems to be an altercation because they won't let him in." And so my idea is fine because now I can get a ride home. Let me go tell Red. I go down there and Red is like, you know, it's a commotion at the door uh, with Red and some altercation. So I'm kind of like, okay, Red, you know what? I don't know what the altercation is, but just take me home. Because Red didn't, he looking at me like, chill, what you doing here? This was nothing we had arranged. And uh, so we step outside the club and as soon as we step out the door, bam, Guy hits red in the in the in the in the head. Then the next thing I know, red is is catching it from like five people. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, like okay, you know, so I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to, to jump right in. And as soon as I step, it's like five more cats like, you don't want none of this. And you know, later on the story became, you know, it was an MC chill thing. It was an MC chill altercation. But Technically, those pro- those people at the time, it wasn't about me. They didn't even, I was just a dude trying to get involved in the fight. And it was later they realized that that's MC Chill. But uh, so I'm like, okay, it's five dudes fighting red. It's five dudes trying to stop me. So that's 10 of, 10 of them, two of us. I could run in the club and come down because I'm only in Harvard. I could come down with, with the family. And uh, and I'm like, man, by the time I go up there and have that discussion with all that loud music playing, man, Red would have taken a terrible beat down by then. So I made the decision just to directly get involved at that time. And uh, my idea was if I could get him into an upright position, we could do what we needed to do and, and get in the car and get out. What I did know, in addition to those 10 people, it looked like it was a bunch of other people. And man, we was out there fighting for quite a while, and uh, it was a nice little, nice little tussle. You know, I'm using the full out, uh, <laughs> the full out techniques of my training. I'm kicking, I'm biting, I'm elbowing, head button. We on the ground. I'm back up. It was a nice little, it was a nice little fight. Uh, then after the fight was over, uh, by the end the party, we were fighting so long the party ended. People are coming out the party. I have a chip tooth. And I'm like, hey, it was a fight. I just I just got through fighting about 20 people. What's 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 up? And they like, damn, chill, what happened? 
So I'm telling the telling the people about the fight. Fight's over, and somebody hits me in the back of the head. And at that point, I'm I'm out of the game. My eyeballs roll up in my head. I fall out in front of the sheet. They drag me back in. Ambulance come. People are like, oh, MC Chiller's dead. Uh, they see me unconscious with my eyes in the back of my head. They take me to the hospital. I wake up like five days later with electric stuff attached to my head. No recollection of even being at the the club. Last thing I remember, brain injury is a funny thing. Last thing I remember was being at the wrestling match. And I'm thinking, did I jump up in the ring? And and did I drink too many beers and, and jumped in the ring? And Jesse Ventura pile drove me or suplexed me on my head? Like, how the hell did I come from the wrestling match to the hospital? And uh, so probably months, couple months later, my memory starts to come back. Then I remember the club and I remember the fight. And, and you know, I had some hearing loss in my ear and, and some some uh, other sensory uh, loss with smell and taste. But uh, I, I eventually, you know, made it made it back. Uh, got most of my hearing back, most of my smell and taste back. But uh, it was an experience, and and people were happy to see me. Like, oh my God, chill! I thought you was dead. My roommate, they said my roommate stopped studying because they said if you stop studying during uh, finals week, you get an automatic A. I'm like, man, you better you better tell his ass to crack them books open because I'm I'm not dead. But yeah, so that was. It almost ended just just as it begun. Mm-hmm. So did that? <laughs> so was there even more of an urgency to make your self-titled album a success after you recovered? Did you suffer any pains from the attack which you feel while you're on stage? While you were on stage? Uh no residual pain. I mean, other than the day that I woke up in the hospital with the most gigantic headache that you could imagine, uh, sensitive to light. I mean, I was like complaining every day that they would open the curtains. I'm like, please close those back because the, the light was was causing me like a crazy, enormous headache. Uh, the food was, was awful. I was complaining about the food every day, not realizing that I couldn't taste, that, that something had affected my sense of taste. So the food probably was fine. I just didn't realize it. And and that that didn't come back until a long time where everything I tasted tasted like metal. And every every uh, 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 sensory smell uh, smelled like alcohol. Uh, whether it be cologne or food, it all smelled like alcohol and all food tasted like metal. So, and because of the hearing in the left ear, you know, it was a lot of times if somebody was saying something to me and they were on the left side of me, I would I would turn to the right because I'm only hearing it out of one side of my ear. So that was a little strange. But uh, and it affected recording processes because, you know, a lot of times I would record with one ear on the on the thing and it would it was thrown off my balance of, of hearing. So it affected that a little bit, but no pain. Uh Doctor said I had a subdural hematoma. It just told me to be careful uh, about, you know, any any further head injuries. But uh, other than that, I, I kept rocking. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was back to the stage, back to the mic, and finish out, you know, this process 
of these next singles and the next songs and the rest of my career and touring and and doing shows. It was it was it was back to the grill again. Mm-hmm. So, how would you describe your performance style, and how would you describe the stage show that you perfected? Oh my God! And I, and I I credit uh, I credit a lot of that to to my manager uh, Red Turner. People know him now as Uncle Red because Red, like I said, it comes from a musical uh, background of being down with the OJ's and a lot of other a lot of other groups. And you know, Red gives people the whole full rundown of of him being a roadie and an assistant and and with a lot of other R and B groups so he he drilled us as to rehearse rehearse the way you're gonna perform and uh and so and, and i also credit sal at the fever it was like chill you got you got a lot of uh, singing in your songs and girls singing hooks you should think about getting some girls to sing during the show and uh so i started rolling with, with two two girls now we had three altogether because occasionally one girl couldn't come or had you know issues or family or one one girl Sharon C who's Cochise's sister was in ROTC so we rolled with uh, Sharon C Tammy Tarleton and Kelly Chapman who was Mike Chapman's sister and uh, so you know they would kind of rotate depending on on where the show was at so we had like a, a dynamic stage show I mean it was it was a lot of people on stage that you really didn't see in rap rap uh, rap shows back then, but it was organized. You know, we had we had stage placement. So mm-hmm. a lot of times the show was two background singers, the MC, my beatboxer, Beatmaster T, two male dancers, Teddy Ted, Spin Love, and uh, that's a lot of people on stage. For a solo artist, and uh, but it always the show was a real professional-looking show as far as blocking and and you know and I, I tell people, Jay Z didn't start uh, rocking tuxedos with sneakers on. Uh, <laughs> as people see some of my early shows, I'm rocking tux with Reeboks, and uh, and so we dressed we dressed for shows a lot of the time. So it was a it was a it was a very uh, visual show with a lot of stuff happening, singing, dancing, beatboxing, and him singing. So you you got a full complement of uh, of entertainment watching an MC. I used to call it the greatest show on earth. The greatest show on earth. So let's give an example to the people of the greatest show on earth right now.
So, that's an example of the greatest show on earth, right? That's Man, you see me walking around the stage looking like Big Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> All so I needed that, was a drink in my that, hand. That was the Ohio Breakers that you had on that show with you that day. And what was yeah, the response uh, the of the audience? Because when he was doing that, I've never seen that before. Someone that could snake off the stage, roll and come back up on the stage. I've never seen that done. So I know that the people who were from places that profess to be the best at pop ticking, breaking, I know they were shocked, especially with that handstand too. I know that was incredible. Yeah, and and what we didn't see in that clip uh, was Spin Love doing one of the greatest head spins that you will ever see from anybody. So yeah, Ted, Teddy Ted uh, was the regular dancer, and and I I met Ted. I was his camp counselor uh, at an NFLPA camp, and he was an outstanding dancer even his, through his entire life. And I told him if I ever got a record deal, uh, that he I would come back and get him as a dancer. And uh, the same thing with Baby Break, where you saw do the do the worm, the snake off of the off the stage. Now that was a, that one caught me by surprise. That wasn't rehearsed. Uh, okay. And and Red wasn't real happy about that one. Like that's that's not what we rehearsed. Like oh that that didn't actually work out good uh, for him. But, it looked uh, good. It I looked would, good. I would meet, yeah, I would meet, uh, I would meet Baby Break from the Ohio Breakers. I worked at, at May Company downtown, and during break, I would leave downtown, hook up with with uh, with, with Baby Break somewhere down in the city, and then meet up, meet up with Red. Okay, I'll tell you this. This is an exclusive. This is what really happened. I would leave for lunch break from Macy's. I would see baby break. He would give me a, a, a joint. He'd give me a J. He'd give me a little, <laughs> little split, which I didn't smoke. And I still don't smoke. But okay. what I would do is I would hold on to it. Then I would go hook up with Red, who was working security at Woolworths downtown. So then I would, you know, I would I'd make the handoff to Red. And this was like almost every day. And uh so I told Baby Break, yo, when I when I get this deal, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna look for you. And so we we end up getting the deal. I got Ted, I got Feet Master T, I had the girls singing. And uh so along with Baby Break, he brought uh Lorenzo. Well later name he was called Mr. Headspin. So Lorenzo and Baby Break were members of the Ohio Breakers. And so I brought both of them onto that show. That show was the Ohio Valley Music Awards, which Arsenio Hall hosted and uh ll was there fat boys was there houdini was there uh as rappers but it was other r&b singers as well it was a nice event it was at the step and uh so and oddly enough they requested that i do prophecy that's the only time that that's the only performance of prophecy ever no no time before that and no time after that and they felt that that was a safe song for me to do because they were still kind of iffy about hip hop at that time. So they requested that I do prophecy, and I—I I mean, I loved that song. That's one of the, mm-hmm. one of the one of the favorite songs of mine because of the the lyrical content and what I'm talking about. But 
I had, it was never a single in the States. And so I had never, we had never performed, which was in it because Beatmaster T almost, he beats beatbox on Buster's Rhyme and Downbeats, but in Prophecy, there's no beatbox. So you saw him on the stage thinking that he was DMC to my run, which is also hilarious because he was, he, that was his shot to, because I said, T, T, you can, so this is going to be a big thing, a big show, and you're not beatboxing. You, I still want you on the stage, and you can just kind of do accents because you know the song. Just maybe catch the end. But T Lightweight tried to do a duet with me, uh, and I still joke with oh, I, he, he we went full out Run DMC with that one. <laughs> but yeah, no, and because people saw that whole hip hop, it was a collage of of a professional show with singers, inclusive. Of, of elements of hip hop. I got the beatbox element. I got the breakdance element. I got the, the pop tick lock element. In addition to the girls back there looking like I'm I'm thinking I'm performing on fame. But, uh, and I'm walking around in a tuxedo like I think I'm Bing Crosby. All I need is a martini in my hand. But no, it was, it was a visually different show and everywhere we ever performed we always rock any anybody who's in the show with us they i don't think they knew that we was coming like that so everywhere we did a show it was an excellent show we rocked every single place we ever went never did a bad show well let's give another example of your performance prowess before i ask you about prophecy all right so let's check this out right here on April 4th, 1986, a landmark in rap music history ended. The disco fever known as the premier night spot in the Bronx was closed, but... Tonight, Video Music Box kicks it live in the South Bronx from the Devil's Nest. It's the 10th anniversary of the disco fever, so let's get busy, y'all. The night started out hot. It was a who's who in the music business. Jam Master Jay of Run DMC... A very big limo brought the fat boys in, human beatbox. The real Roxanne was a showstopper. Grand Mixer DST. Disco Fever recording artist MC Chill. I bring you the newest Fever recording artist, all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, MC Chill. I wrote this story not just for me, but for those who love to become MCs. For those who know and who understand how good it feels with a mic in your hand. If you're down and you know it, you're not just a poet or just anybody there with a mic in your face. You're the heart of the street, the king of the beat, a slave to the rhythm that rocks the place. You're a DJ dream and MC supreme. Cause being chilly, man, if you know what I mean, every night I pray. Each and every time, and they got to be born with the power of rhyme. My neurological needs, it is a mission to explore my God-given gift. To want it so bad, we would do it for free. We were sworn to be born the Supreme MC. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's another example. Actually, at the 10-year uh, anniversary of the fever, right? That's the fever. Man, that was a magical night. The fever anniversary was incredible. And to be able to perform at the fever anniversary because you got to realize man i was on stage performing curtis blow performed run dmc performed houdini performed uh love bug starsky performed it was you know grandmaster flash and them it was it was a who's who 
of uh, the biggest acts in hip hop on that stage that night. So to, to share that stage uh, with those giants, to be like the new kid uh, was an incredible night. And in the audience, it just wasn't, it was invitation only. The audience was was MCs and rappers, Dougie Fresh and UTFO. And, and like you saw, Roxanne, uh, the real Roxanne, the Grand Mixer DST, Russell Simmons was was there. So the, the, the performers were large, the audience was large. And uh, to be in the Bronx, at that fever anniversary party was was incredible. That was a that was a definitely a highlight of, of my career. So the prophecy is a sleeper in the states on the album, but not overseas. Uh, the hook, as not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Uh, John Dunny. Poet priest wrote those words speaking of death. No man is an island unto himself, so ask not for whom the bell tolls. The bell tolls tolls for thee. What struck you about what he wrote that was nearly then a century before, uh, which made you incorporate it into? Ask not for who the bell tolls, right? Into prophecy. What made you incorporate that into the lyrics? What stood out about it? Well, I mean, the prophecy. Anybody who hears the song of prophecy, it was a it's a different type of song. And like you said, it didn't. They didn't. They, it's not a song that they played uh, in the states, but it was big in the UK. The film review, movies, music, culture, politics, society podcast. Interviews, movie reviews, and more live Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on the Film Review Live channel. Subscribe. Hi, this is Bernadette Stannis, Thelma from Good Times, and you're watching the Film Review. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.